Well, I just want to talk about my friends and family behind their backs, so that's what I'm doing here. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's for the smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week, in preparation for the release of The Snowman, we are taking a look at that director's earlier movie, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. So we're looking at Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Paranoia. And uh, it's, it feels like minutes since we've had this person on our show, but we have Michael Denniston of War Machine vs. Warhorse, Marcus Play, The Grand Gesture, uh, Projecting Films, anything else I'm missing? Oh, Original Remake. That's that's the other one. Is that it? <laughs> it doesn't. The only thing that matters is that your listeners are having the best week of their lives. It's true. Right now. Yeah, Happy Death Day, and now basically the same movie, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, right? I mean, it's a perfect combination. <laughs> yeah, those those are the two films I think of when I watched Tinker Tailor for the first time. I thought, you know, years from now, I will be talking about this in combination with a slasher film, The Apes Groundhog Day, of course. <laughs> Definitely, yes. Uh, So before we kind of get into the movie, uh, which one of your podcasts would you like to publicize for people to listen to if they're not already? How about projecting film? I don't know. Is that the closest I can get to uh, paranoia or at least our own uh, delusions? The the premise of that show is that uh, me and Chris Maynard from War Machine vs. War Horse, and he hosts his own podcast uh, following films and interview show. Uh, We look at independent films. Probably movies you've not seen, uh, unless you're in a bigger market and up-to-date maybe on VOD, like day-of releases. Uh, We look at one of those films. Uh, We don't go too far into it with the awareness that you've probably not seen it. So the premise is we try to pitch it to you with each of us bringing our own film, uh, in particular the theme that we sort of latched onto the most. And uh, we don't know what the other one's going to choose. So it's, it's a little bit revealing... Uh, to both of us in that conversation as far as uh, which angle we approach the film on. And uh, we've not gotten close yet. So I don't know if that speaks to (laughs) the fact that we are sworn enemies or we're just perfect uh, podcast buddies. But yeah, we've not yet hit on the same movie. So it's kind of a cool little game that we play and uh, hopefully people like to check us out. We're on followingfilms.com and you can follow us on social media at Projecting Film. Um, wherever the kids hang out. I don't know what they use these days. ICQ? Is that still a thing? Instant messaging? I think that's gone. I'm guessing that's gone. But, you know, you never know. I bet you I could get the handle if it exists, That's though. right. Almost guaranteed. All right. Uh, so, before we get into the psychology and paranoia, do you have a couple movie recommendations to go with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? I think on uh, War Machine vs. War Horse, this was like our second or third episode and we paired it off with spy game which is like the opposite in tone which worked yeah. for that show i like that movie probably though. not i think that movie I do like it uh, undersold that's a good one but very different yeah, from tinker uh, taylor <laughs> yeah a, a, a tony scott uh, <laughs> joint there and so you get brad pitt in slow-mo with his beautiful hair as he faces an explosion um but something more in line not necessarily a spy thriller but it does deal with paranoia it's um 
Steven Spielberg's look at Assassins with uh, Munich, uh, yeah. story of uh, revenge. One and of so your that favorites. One extremely. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. So I knew I was going to bring it up, and uh, it is right up there with Jaws as far as my favorite Spielberg film. So I was, you know, one uh, it's pretty much a tie. One's very fun, mm-hmm. and the other one has a shark. Yeah, and I was going to so, say. <laughs> uh, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, if you if you're in the mood for a. Uh, sort of paranoid thriller uh that's one to go with uh but if you're in the mood for fun watch jaws or watch spy game how about that nice i like it all right so we're gonna take a quick break uh i'll talk about paranoia and then we'll bring mike back to talk about tinker taylor soldier spy hello my name is andrew i'm the host of the last new wave the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on twitter or facebook at the last new wave all right so it's time for the psychology section and today we're talking about paranoia so paranoia is just a thought process that is heavily influenced by fear and anxiety and it can even get to the point of delusion and just being totally irrational now paranoid thinking will usually include persecutory beliefs of conspiracy concerning a threat towards yourself like everyone is out to get me um, and paranoia is different from a phobia, from being uh, being afraid of something to a to a kind of clinical level. Um, phobias also involve irrational fear, but no blame on the outside world. So something that usually accompanies paranoia is making false accusations and just generally distrusting everyone. For example, most people might view a certain incident as an accident, but if someone's paranoid, they're going to believe it was intentional, even something that couldn't be intentional. And paranoia is also a symptom of psychosis. Now, there's a fair amount of causes out there. There's some physical causes, uh, can be from a decline in brain circulation from high blood pressure or the hardening of the arterial walls. Uh, and there's also some that say that's a social and environmental cause. Uh, there was data collected by means of a mental health survey in, in Mexico and in southern Texas. And paranoid beliefs were associated with people who felt powerlessness and victimization. And another researcher, Emmanuel Messenger, reported that surveys have revealed that people exhibiting paranoia can actually evolve from parental relationships and environments that were not trustworthy. So this can include environments where there was lots of discipline uh, and it intended to be unstable. And in the in the actual article, he said, Indulging and pampering, thereby impressing the child that he is something special and warrants special privileges, can be contributing background. And experiences likely to enhance or manifest symptoms of paranoia include increased rates of disappointment, stress, and a hopeless state of mind. Another area where they've seen as a potential predictor of paranoia and delusions is discrimination. So these reports say that paranoia appears more in older patients that have experienced higher levels of discrimination throughout their lives. And of course, this makes perfect sense because in some ways that paranoia is adaptive. They have been discriminated against all their lives. Why would they not expect the world to be out to get them? And then, of course, there's the psychological causes. So lots of theories have been offered on the causes of things like delusional paranoia. And one researcher named Lake hypothesized that there are two common mood-based symptoms 
namely grandiosity and guilt, which may underlie everything that goes on in paranoia. Now, way back in 1981, Colby defined paranoid cognition as persecutory delusions and false beliefs whose content clusters around ideas of being harassed, threatened, harmed, subjugated, persecuted, accused, mistreated, wronged, tormented, disparaged, vilified, and so on by malevolent others, either specific individuals or groups. So three components of this paranoid cognition have been identified by later researchers. One, suspicions without enough basis that others are exploiting, harming, or deceiving them. Two, preoccupation with unjustified doubts about the loyalty or trustworthiness of friends or associates. And C, reluctance to confide in others because of an unwarranted fear that the information will be used harshly against them. So paranoid cognition uh, has been conceptualized by clinical psychologists almost totally in terms of psychodynamic constructs. So from this point of view, paranoid cognition is just a a manifestation of a conflict, an intrapsychic conflict. For instance, back to Colby, he suggested that the biases of blaming other people for your problems actually helps the amount of distress you're feeling when you get humiliated. So this takes all the pressure off of of the self and takes the blame away and puts it on other people. So this perspective emphasizes that the cause of these paranoid cognitions are inside the head of the people and dismiss the fact that paranoid cognition can be related to a social context, which we just talked about. So this point gets more and more relevant because the origins of distrust and suspicion When they're studied, many researchers have shown the importance of this social interaction, particularly when the social interaction goes in unexpected and negative directions. Now, another relevant difference can be can be shown among, quote, pathological and non-pathological forms of trust and distrust. So another researcher, Dutch, he said that the main difference is that non-pathological forms are flexible and responsive to changing circumstances. So you're taking in the information. You're not just saying automatically, I'm going to distrust people. Now, the pathological forms, on the other hand, will reflect an exaggerated bias and a predisposition towards judgment that can arise and then then perpetuate these errors over and over and over again. And it's even been suggested that there's a hierarchy of paranoia. It starts with kind of this mild social concern, um, all the way to these persecutory beliefs containing mild, moderate, and severe threat. Now, it's important to note that generally it's agreed upon that individuals with paranoid delusions will have the tendency to take some form of action based on these beliefs. So lots more research is needed Uh, on the particular types of actions that are pursued. Some researchers have made an attempt to distinguish these different actions as a result of the delusions. Uh, So Wesley, in 1993, studied individuals with delusions that had more than half had reportedly taken action or behaved as a result of these delusions. However, the overall actions were not of a violent nature in most of the informants. The authors noted that other studies have shown that violent behaviors were actually more common in certain types of paranoid individuals. Now, other researchers still have found associations between childhood abusive behaviors and the appearance of violent behaviors in psychotic individuals. So this actually could be a a result of the inability to cope with aggression as well as other people around them, especially because they're constantly paying attention to potential threats in their environment. So if you're constantly thinking something is going on and I'm going to be attacked at any moment, of course you're going to be more aggressive. 
So the attention to threat itself has been proposed as actually one of the major contributors of these violent actions in paranoid people. Uh, and other studies have shown that there may be may only be certain types of delusions that promote these behaviors, especially persecutory delusions. All right, so the last thing I want to talk about is more specifically paranoid social cognition. And I want to talk about that because this is a mild form of paranoid cognition. So this is something that wouldn't be diagnosable but still might be affecting people negatively. So people that have studied this say that in milder forms, paranoid cognitions may actually be really common among quote-unquote normal individuals. For instance, it wouldn't be odd that people might exhibit in their daily life self-centered thoughts, thinking that they're being talked about, being suspicious of other people's intentions, or assumptions of hostility in the outside world. So these milder forms of paranoid cognition, as we kind of mentioned earlier, might be an adaptive response to cope with a disturbing environment. So there's some what they would call situational antecedents, so things that you would see in the environment that might lead to this paranoid cognition. One, uh, perceived social distinctiveness. So we tend to categorize ourselves in terms that make us feel unique or different from other people in a lot of circumstances. Um, so things like gender, ethnicity, age, experience, these become really relevant to explain people's behaviors uh, when these attributes make them unique in a social group. So if you're the only man in a social group, uh, the only Asian American in a social group, whatever, um, this distinctive attribute may influence not only how people are perceived, but how they perceive themselves. And second is the perceived evaluative scrutiny. So according to this theory, this dysphoric self-consciousness may increase. Dysphoric just means, you know, euphoric is really happy, really great. Dysphoric is the opposite. And this may increase when people feel under moderate or even intense social scrutiny. So if you feel like you are being scrutinized and being watched, then your self-identity, you're going to feel worse about it, right? Makes sense. I think everyone can kind of understand that. And three, uncertainty about social standing. So if we're not sure where we stand, it's not like, because if we're on a low standing, we know that and we can adjust to it. And if we're on a high standing, same thing. But if we don't know where we stand, then it can be really, it can be a really awkward situation, really difficult. We don't know how to act. So of course, we would be paranoid about how people are looking at us. Another thing that happens is a lot of hypervigilance and rumination. So hypervigilance um, is a term you'll hear a lot when you talk about PTSD, where people with PTSD are constantly looking around and constantly searching for threats uh, because that's what their body is telling them that they may experience. And rumination is when we think on something over and over and over again without any kind of, without any productivity. So self-consciousness is characterized as an aversive psychological state, not a good place to be. So according to theory, people experiencing this level of self-consciousness are highly motivated to get rid of it, to reduce it. And they want to make sense of what they're going through. So these attempts end up promoting hypervigilance and rumination, right? If you want to fix this problem, you're looking for threats and you're constantly thinking about what's going on. So unfortunately, this creates a really vicious circular relationship. More hypervigilance generates more rumination and more rumination generates more hypervigilance and it keeps going and going and going. And the last thing is there's three main judgmental consequences that have been identified that come from this kind of paranoid cognition. One, the sinister attribution error. So this bias captures the tendency that social perceivers have to over-attribute lack of trustworthiness to others. 
to the overly personalistic construal of social interaction. So this is the idea that the paranoid perceiver interprets others' actions in a disproportional self-referential way. It's all about me. And this increases the belief that he or she is the target of other people's thoughts or actions. And third is the exaggerated perception of conspiracy. So this refers to the idea that the paranoid perceiver, again, must over-attribute social coordination to others' actions. Under this point of view, the paranoid perceiver will attribute linkages among people who are engaged in independent actions. So you could have four or five people doing very different things, and if you have this judgmental bias, you're going to make a pattern, and you're going to put it together that they are all working together, and they are all out to get me. All right, so that's it for the psychological section. Um, I talked a lot about the fact that some of this paranoid thinking can actually be adaptive. And I think we are going to find that a lot considering that this movie is about spies. I mean, who better to be paranoid and constantly be on their guard than people who deal with the intelligence communities. But we are going to take a little break and then we'll bring back Michael Denniston of Projecting Film to talk about Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy. Shannon. CG. Lauren and Mel form the Nerds of Prey, a group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them bi-weekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerds of prey. All right, so we're back. So we're back to actually talk about the movie now. As we always do, what is your history with Tinker Taylor? I watched it on a theatrical release. Now, I had not read any of like the Smiley novels. And uh, after the film, I read the, the first one, which I've hmm. forgotten the name of. But I did enjoy it. Apparently not enough to continue on. Or I'm just lazy when it comes to reading. <laughs> but yeah. um, I had not seen, I think the BBC, was that a miniseries? I had right. not seen the first uh, version, the first film version Starring of the story. Alec so it was, it was in the main role. People are really defensive about that like everyone i talk to who is a little bit older about tinker taylor and i say i really like the movie and they're like that movie's bullshit watch the miniseries like they're very they're very adamant about that and alec guinness in the in the lead role instead of gary oldman i mean the man i believe has passed right i, yes. I think he passed the one yes <laughs> a while ago I, I don't think he was available so i think <laughs> <it's> <laughs> Someone else, you know, yes. took up the uh, George Smiley cowl there, the glasses. <laughs> I, uh, but you know, maybe I should check it out. Uh, I greatly sure. enjoyed this, so um, I, I don't know if it would probably jive with me stylistically because this film has a lot of style to it uh, and the, the tone. But I'm, yeah. I'm sure it's different, and not knocking them, not right. knocking people who want <laughs> <laughs> the Jedi ghost about Guinness to still be playing <laughs> Smiley. Uh, but no, it was it was fresh for me, and I, I just knew it um, from initial reviews that uh, Gary Oldman was getting sort of Oscar talk, uh, and it was like Gary Oldman is back. Gary Oldman's in the leading role, and this is great, and you should go see it. And I did, and the group of people I went to see it with, family and friends, all hated it, and I was the one trying to defend it out yeah. in the cold. And then I was like, ah, fuck it, I'll just go home and eventually start a podcast about this, and uh, I could tell I'll just the world about them. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to talk about my friends and family behind their backs, so that's what I'm doing here. It's a good of way course. To do it. So, yeah, yeah, that that is my experience with it initially. I was I was a fan uh, as soon as I watched it. 
Yeah, this is a movie I also caught on theatrical release uh, kind of randomly. Like, it wasn't something that I saw the trailer and was like, oh, I definitely have to see that. Although I love Gary Oldman and will kind of watch him in anything he's in, uh, which can lead you down some really interesting paths if, if you look at his filmography. But just kind of, you know, I remember, you know, me and my wife were just kind of sitting home and we were like, let's go to a movie. And that just happened to be playing. I was like, oh, Gary Oldman's in that. I'll, I'll check that out. And I was like stunned by this movie, like completely, completely taken by surprise it was not what i expected i think sometimes when you think of spy thrillers you think of things that are really fast-paced uh and this would definitely be the opposite of that and i remember being in the theater and like kind of seeing the audience kind of shift in their seats about 30 40 minutes into this two hour long movie very uncomfortably and i was like totally enthralled by it um so it's a movie that i after after i saw it like after it came out immediately bought it and but it's one of those movies that it's – I mean we've talked about this on other podcasts. I think we talked about this on Marcus Played uh, recently. Like some movies are great, but you can't just like, oh, let me just uh, relax and uh, watch Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy tonight. You know, It's not one of those movies that jumps to mind, but I've seen it I think now three times since it's been released on home video. And every time like I – after I watch it, I'm like, God, why don't I watch this more often? This movie is so phenomenal, but it is, I mean, we'll talk about this, especially probably with the directing and the writing, but it's uh, it's an effortful watch. Like, it's not something you can just put on in the background and not really pay attention to. So I'm a big, big fan of this movie. Actually, we were talking off mic, and I, I feel like it's probably my second favorite movie of this kind of young century. Like, I think it's right up there with Zodiac. Like, that's where I put it. So, so you know, as big, far as direction, uh, so this is... Directed by uh, Thomas Alfredson, who is going to be directing uh, The Snowman, which gives me a little bit of hope for that. But we'll talk about that at the end. What did you think of his direction here? Very controlled. He's very, very confident. You know, a lot of these scenes play out without you being totally aware of uh, why you're watching what you're watching or Mm -hmm. what these reactions mean. Because these are people that try to keep their emotions in check, their I mean, their their business and their craft is not revealing what they know and trying to gain as much information, even from their allies, their colleagues. They want they are manipulating each other to try to have the upper hand. And some of them are just trying to move up uh, through the ranks. Some, you know, in particular, there's uh, one rat. There's a uh, one man of deceit here um, and who I was very disappointed in after a few years of finding him to be. Uh, a nice young man, a nice romantic lead for <laughs> many <laughs> beautiful ladies on screen. Yep. Um, but I, I think that it's interesting that, you know, my friends and family didn't, um, didn't much care for it. And I think because you, you mentioned when you watched it, that there's a certain point where uh, I, I can see people throwing their hands up because, mm-hmm. you know, the opening sequence, you're, I think you're accustomed to films like, okay, I'm not supposed to know what's going on exactly, but someone's going to tell me. Right. <laughs> and when you have your lead here, played by Gary Oldman, also giving a very controlled and competent performance, who gives nothing away, you're like, someone just fucking tell me. Just fucking tell me what <laughs> happened. Like, why did that dude get shot? Who right. knew what? And, uh, can I have some words I, on I the screen? The can part, I get some narration? Something? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, you were probably seeing it from the point of view of the Benedict Cumberbatch character mm-hmm. where you're, you're more aware of, as far as from an operational standpoint of what they're trying to achieve, but you don't really know how his individual moves and what you're seeing plays into the, the grand plan here. And for me, it's not frustrating, but I do understand how it could be yes. frustrating because there, there is that withholding there where he is really slow playing 
any sort of enjoyment you're getting out of the spy craft. And there, there is no montage with Robert Redford. No. Saying, hey, why don't you go pick up some chicks? <laughs> why don't you go hit on some ladies? Sadly, no. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I think I think you bring up a great point with how controlled this movie is and how confident his direction is. Because this is a movie that, you know, about half the time you were seeing things happen as they unfold. And about half the time you were looking at flashbacks and things going on in other places. And it does not spoon, it does not, uh, spoon feed you uh, what's, what exactly is going on. Like there, I mean, the first time I watched it, and even the second time I watched it, if I'm being honest, there are times where it takes me a second to catch up. That like, oh, this isn't happening right now. This is back then. And, you know, there is a really quick transition. It's usually from Smiley's face and then they go into the they go into the thing in the past. But it's not something where it's obvious, you know, because it's not like, oh, this happened 40 years ago. So the style is different and the way people act is different. It's all fairly recent. So I like the confidence he shows not only as a director, but. Something you rarely see, and this is probably why this movie didn't do that well, uh, you know, as far as box office stuff, but it tr- he trusts his audience to catch up. He trusts us to figure it out, you know, because we're supposed to be putting ourselves in the place of this kind of spy craft, and we should be able to catch up. But it, again, it's not a movie for everybody, and it's not a movie that if you're kind of half paying attention, you're going to follow. Like, you can't be looking at your phone during this movie, because by the end of the movie, you'd be like, uh, what? What did I just watch? I missed something big because there's all these little moments that add up. Yeah, the only reason to look at your phone would be uh, if you've got Wikipedia up, like I do now. Yes. As far as, here's the plot. It's here's valid. the character list. Here's their nicknames. That would be it. That, right. that would be the, the only reason. Or if you're a super you know, smiley fan, maybe, of the books, right. if it's just ingrained in you. But, sure, sure. Uh, no, you have, to, you have to stick with it. And, it, you know, it's – I would say it's probably one of those rare films um, – I don't know about presentation wise, but probably plays better at home yeah. where you can pause it, where you can have no distractions. Like, you know, if you have someone coughing in the theater or, you know, something where you just briefly are like annoyed with whoever's like <laughs> sitting in the row next to you, you've you could a just major miss something. Plot point. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then I'm going to, I'm going to spend the rest of the time like fucking fuming at these people. It's like, you know, it's you not that I'm dumb. That you distracted me. Yeah. You're the reason I'm, I feel so stupid. Not that I actually am stupid, which I assure you, dear listener. <laughs> I am not. I am stupid. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> uh, as a thought, from a direction standpoint, I think sometimes some directors, like, they either don't care or lose track of what's going on with people in the background. Uh, but particularly in that opening scene where we think Mark Strong's character has died. I mean, I think it's definitely set up that way for us to think he's just been murdered and we're never seeing Mark Strong again, which is a great faint that they do in this movie. Cause I was like, Oh man, Mark Strong is dead. And then of course shows up later, but all the, you know, all the waiters, like focusing in on like the sweat on the brow of the waiters and everything that's going in the background, all of this, like he as a director does exactly what he's trying to get across. And he's not willing to let anything slip through his fingers. Let me tell you, I don't, I don't have to be a spy, but if I see my waiter, like sweating, <laughs> sweating bullets, I'm not encouraged. Like, uh, to this eat is not going to end well liquid. for me. <laughs> There's some bug going around here. I think, uh, yeah, check, please. <laughs> it's time to go. I also thought there's one particular <laughs> shot that stands out to me. There's a shot like from the, the outside of the library as the camera kind of pans up and you can kind of just see into the building. And it's just really smooth and really beautiful. And there's a couple shots like that in here. There's also another shot with Tom Hardy and, uh, and and his like his lady lead and you see their shot in the reflection and it's just like stunning and i and it is a movie that i think 
it it's the perfect movie for shots like this because it is so slow paced. So you get to kind of take your time and really take in what's going on and take in the kind of the largeness of the situation. So I really like that he took his time there. Yeah, the, the staging is excellent here. The yeah. uh, the sequence where uh, Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch as uh, Peter Gwillem has to go in and retrieve uh, a file. Mm-hmm. Uh, like oh, there, that's a great setup. Library. Yeah, the way he has like you know flirtation with the young lady that clearly has a crush on him. That he like you know he, he has to play out the string just enough. Right. Uh, then the phone call. We know that's the, not the, for the him. Mechanic. <laughs> Not for him. Nope. You know, she doesn't need to know, though. That's right. <laughs> He's a is, real spy. This is a spy game, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's, where you, that's where you cut in right now a clip that's of Brad right. Pitt being trained. There you go. <laughs> yeah, trained to just get ass left and right from the best, Robert Redford. I don't think Brad Pitt needs training there. I think he's okay. Um, yeah, I also think like one of my favorite scenes in the movie that doesn't quite make the cut for our favorite scene section is that that scene near the end with kind of the the airplane and the car kind of reveal uh, with Smiley. Like we're and as an audience, I think it's so clever because we're not sure what's going on. Like you know, sometimes with mystery movies, with spy movies, you are constantly trying to figure out. And I think this movie, like if anybody told me they figured out what the ending of this movie was going to be. I just, I'm sorry, I don't believe you. I think you're a liar uh, because I think it's so, it's so well hidden as it should be. All of, as you mentioned, all of these people are trained in how to not reveal who they are. So I think when it finally happens and we get that kind of smirk on Smiley's face as he's figuring it out, we have, we have a moment because I think we're so connected to him where we're kind of celebrating internally. Like finally we're getting to find out what's going on here. Yeah. If this was a, like an American film uh with you know the, the cia or fbi or whatever uh you would definitely have a version an american version of smiley like yelling and berating people he would <laughs> yes. have more pacino moments and he yes. has a couple he has a couple here where he lashes out and you really need you need those moments because you, you want to see this guy like our hero do something heroic in the cinematic fashion at least what we're expecting which is where he does something extremely masculine and right. shows like you know i am the the sort of dominant force here i i i have your number mm-hmm. uh and i think that's part of the part of the mixed or negative reaction uh at least of people i know is that he's just so reserved yep <laughs> it's like we know you're the good guy <laughs> do something beat yep. somebody up please that's right violence we want it (laughs) so that's the perfect transition into our acting because i think this is like i was wondering it as i started to watch it and by the time i finish watching this again i am convinced that this is gary oldman's best performance and he's had a lot he's had a lot of really great he's also had a lot of like crazy performances the guy is willing to do a lot of things i mean he's in the fifth element he's in uh, air force one like he's not he's not one of these you know oscar level actors like well i'm only gonna take these roles that are sure to I'm sure to look good when I take these roles. Like if you're going to be in, in the fifth element, you're not really concerned about that. He just likes to work. Uh, but I think this is his best. Oh, he looked pretty damn good in uh, true romance. <laughs> and you're uh, going to bring that up. <laughs> yes. Oh, wearing a boxer shorts. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good look. But Drexel's you, all right, man. Yeah. <laughs> but you mentioned him being so like kind of under control and like the word that I kept thinking of was distant. 
in this movie. And that is a really hard thing to pull off, as you mentioned, for our star, for our protagonist, for him to be that distant and that calculated. I think when we think of characters who are calculating in what they do, we think of villains, usually. Like they have this master plan and they're going to put it in place and you're never going to find out. But he is always so careful in this role to not give away too much, even to people he cares about, even to people he at some level trusts. He knows that he's not totally sure he can trust anybody. So I think I was I was talking to our, our mutual friend Sheila, and she was talking about this movie, and she said something like, I think Gary Oldman burned about nine calories making this movie. Like, he was just so silent and so stoic and not a lot of movement, and yet you get all of these emotions that he's feeling. They're all portrayed, like, just basically through his eyes, and I think it's an incredible performance, and I wish, I wish roles like this got more rewarded, because usually... The the awards go to the big roles, the ones that like either, you know, you put on a lot of makeup or a fake nose or you put on an affectation. But these to me, these are the roles that are really impressive. Yeah, I mean, you get something like Casey Affleck last year, which mm-hmm. is a, uh, a quieter version. But, you know, he's still playing a character that has a, a larger than life, thankfully, tragedy. You know, it's right. not very common. So we get to project all these emotions onto him, even when he's not displaying mm-hmm. those emotions. Right. And you'll get Smiley that here. here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there are definitely things that are tragic as far as, uh, his peers and, you know, he has a, a marriage that has, has failed, but he doesn't, he doesn't have that huge drama. Right. He's basically just doing his job and doing it well. Mm-hmm. And your, your entry point to aligning with him is just if you feel like overlooked like this is like the most <laughs> intense version of like office space right? it's like you know what i shouldn't have been shown the door i'm smarter than the system i was i was doing right. good work there yep. and so this is the ultimate go back to work and put people in their place like mm-hmm. i'm in charge now but it's not manchester by sea you're right it's not dramatic and i i agree with you i wish roles like this you know my favorite uh performances last year were in, in loving and right. Joel Edgerton talk about underplayed. Yeah. Yeah. Very underplayed that, that, so I really do gravitate to those type of roles, which is, uh, probably why I'm just a failed podcaster instead of a failed actor. Cause I would, right. <laughs> I would not be winning awards. I would not be uh, a star. Cause I, I like these type of minimalist, I guess, roles here. Yep. Absolutely. So this is a movie that, you know, star studded, I think is the wrong way to put it. Cause it's not like a Hollywood star studded cast, but if you look at like, Kind of English uh, character actors like this is like a treasure trove. Like you've got um, Gary Oldman, Colin Firth, Tom Hardy, Mark Strong, uh, Ciaran Hens, Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, we got John Hurt. I mean, this is I mean, so who do you in this cast really stands out with their performance? Is there one person who jumps out at John you? Hurt. Than, okay. John I, Hurt. OK, I thought you were going to go with John he's Hurt. The exact, God, he's, he's so the good. exact opposite here of Gary Oldman. And they you know, you you need both of them. And I think. Gary Oldman is our, our hero, our protagonist, can underplay it. If you need a a, a jolt, the energy, God, so energy drink version of this film, yep. you cut to a flashback of John Hurt as control, uh, not only chewing scenery, but usually chewing someone's ass out in right. a room, like in their yeah. little like, meeting Let room. Let me tell you what's destroying up. destroying people <laughs> left and right. Right. Just with complete disregard for their feelings. Take a look at this nonsense. Report by Soviet High Command on their recent naval exercises in the Black Sea. Just what the Admiralty has been begging us for some information on. Where did you get this? I didn't. 
Percy and his little cabal walked in with it. Look, control. Shut up. Style appalling. Patently a fabrication from beginning to end. Just could be the real thing. Well, if it's genuine, it's gold dust. But its topicality makes it suspect. Smiley is suspicious, Percy. Uh, you know, he insults them I, pretty much. I, I want to know how many insults does he get in in his like sort of limited screen time. And it's got to be uh, like one the a minute. Party. Oh, yeah, that's the Christmas party. He's insulting their ability to like spike the, the, the <laughs> You drinks. can't even They're... fucking do this right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, like every time he's on screen, yeah. he's giving it to somebody like there is no holding back for John Hurt. And yet it doesn't feel overacted. This would be a really easy role to go too far over the top, especially in comparison to everyone else being so reserved, but it really works. I mean, I think, I think, I don't think there's a scene with him in it where I'm just like, uh, okay, let's, let's roll it back in here. Mr. Hurt, like none. It's too good. It really works. It's fantastic. Too good. Yeah. His, his delivery of (laughs) smiley is suspicious. It's just like, (laughs) so so good. (laughs) it's like i want that that character i wanted a a uh a spinoff with control in his free time as like some sort of like english football coach just like getting into kids left and right uh just i would watch the hell out of that man that would be great (laughs) yeah um and, and like i mentioned this is a great cast i think cumberbatch is good in a very small role it's interesting because you do say like we are kind of looking at this from his perspective but he is definitely a very very minor character i think mark strong is also like just predictably like dependable and good like he always is even if he's in movies that i don't really put that on the poster well i mean he is like (laughs) the the the, the character one sheets if they did like the marvel or comic stuff where every tinker taylor character got their (laughs) under mark strong pop culture case study says predictably dependable No, but he is one of those actors. He's like a he's a workman like actor. Like he always puts in good performances. I don't think he's ever really been in a movie where he is he is the lead um, in this type of movie where he would get that kind of attention. But he is one of those actors. Like we've we've talked about this, I think before, where there's certain actors when they show up, you're like, okay, I feel safe. I feel like this is going to be good because this person has showed up. And Mark Strong is definitely one of those actors. But I think the person who stands out to be control. Yeah, uh, zero dark thirty. He yeah, got to be the that's one true. chewing people's asses. Boy, out, did so. he! Yes, good absolutely. for you, Mark Strong. He's moving up in the world, that's good. But I think the person that stands out to me, and maybe just because of the actor he's become, is Tom Hardy here, who doesn't show up till relatively late in the movie, probably about halfway through the film. But you could just like sometimes you look back and you could you can just see talent. Like it's just like oozing out of Hardy here. Like he just really owns the screen in every scene he's in, even when he's with these you know, very, you know, very well thought of actors. Like he's not, you can tell he's not intimidated at all. And there's a couple scenes where he's essentially got to give a monologue and has to carry it. And that stuff all really works. Like I was just like, I'm totally entranced by this performance, despite his horrible wig, uh, which is really disturbing in this movie. But his performance is really, really good. (laughs) That could be a trouble spot in the film, as you said, his monologues, because this is a very... Somewhat, I mean, cold, uh, calculating film about cold, calculating people, and he's the romantic, yeah, who's got the backstory where he is basically swearing off this profession, this lifestyle, and the film could run into danger there as far as like you're too ingrained in that world where you're just you don't want to hear from this guy, you don't want to hear right. from, <laughs> about this this woman he fell for. It doesn't seem to fit or. Uh, 
really jive with the, the rest of the characters, but I agree. He does somehow he does. He makes it work mm-hmm. uh, in this, in this film. And I, I think seeing um, Gary Oldman play off of him helps. Oh because yeah. Gary Oldman yet again, gives nothing away. He's just yeah. like, yeah, I'll, I'll see what I'll do the best I can. All right. <laughs> Knowing that this is uh, a fool's errand and you know, love is not going to conquer all. In right. This, this it's version, not that kind of fucking movie, Tom. Sorry. Yeah, so let's let's move to the script. So this is a very complex, detailed script. And you're going to get that when you're – especially when you're adapting a novel like this. Like there's so much that – I'm sure there's a lot – there's a lot left on the cutting room floor that was probably originally in the script. But I think this is – this is one of the best scripts I've I've seen in a long time. Like it – you know, I mentioned it, it, it makes you kind of work for it. But I, th- I don't think there's a lot of loose ends here. I don't think there's things – sometimes in a spy movie, actually most times in a spy movie, there's going to be loose ends where you're like, but what about that? And I don't really have that here. No, there's there's one scene that I really like uh, that also could be a trouble spot, and it's uh, with uh, Kathy Burke as uh, Connie, Connie mm-hmm. Sachs, who mm-hmm. – uh, is one of the the people that was uh, let go around the same time that our hero uh, George was let go, and she, you know, she has a. I mean, pretty much the entirety of that scene is a degree of uh, exposition. There, you know, she's filling in a huge chunk uh, for for Gary Oldman's character as far as what's happened and who possibly could be moving the pieces around. Who is the mole? And um, she plays it with a, a nice degree of levity. Um, that I like it that the way it's scripted she basically before they even get into the nitty gritty I believe her line is I feel seriously underfucked George <laughs> and I'm just like it's a great I, you know, line you need man that. you need that. you know it, it's a great line I, I love I love what she brings to that scene as far as you know it feels like a very full life very three-dimensional character here because she gives him all this information which could be very boring um, but it isn't. And I also love the way that scene resolves. You know, it opens with her making flirtatious, possibly sexual advances mm-hmm. towards George because she mentions, you know, that he is uh, not with his wife anymore. Also uh, under right after Yes. She, yeah. Also. <laughs> um, but, you know, when he leaves, she she basically says uh, she doesn't want to see him or anyone else again from the old life. She wants to remember her boys mm, uh, as, as they, they were. were. Yeah. Which I, I think really that makes the ending work too when that comes back because you know they're going to keep circling back to that Christmas party you know as they were when everyone when you had when control was alive uh, and they were they were bonded in some way but you know the film and our our villain here which we've not yet talked about revealed uh, yeah they're they're going to point out um, how foolish they all were to really buy into that yep. that the, the idea that they were bonded in that particular way so yeah that that's a scene that I think. Uh, it's probably my favorite from the script is what mm. they do with Connie Sachs, where it could just be a big information dump. And uh, it's really funny and really sad by the end of that, that right. particular exchange. Yeah. And there's a couple reveals in this movie. And I think that's what makes the script great is that all these reveals work, but you're not sure how true they are. Like there's a reveal pretty late in the movie that control thought smiley was was the person who was who was the mole. And so it makes you kind of think twice about like, okay, this person I've been following who is holding everything so close to the chest, like is there a reason for that? Is he trying to figure this out or is he going through the motions in the way that Smiley would? So for a half second, you start to doubt that. And then when it's revealed who actually is with everything as you piece the movie together and i think it it is one of those movies that takes a second or a third watch to kind of piece everything together but i think it all does make sense with that final reveal of who the mole is 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's great in that way that everyone, you know, could have been because, uh, as I said, they're all they're all motivated in some way. Maybe it's just professionally, you know, they're not being traitorous, but they're just trying to get one over on their their peers just to to earn a position of power there. See what I can do, like they, you know, that and that's that's how they're played is that they're they're greedy. They they want to have this information to say that they're, they're a value to their country, but upon rewatch. Yeah, there's only like, you know, one particular character who has the interpersonal relationships with all of them yep. that it could have been. And that's, you know, that's our hero's main weakness. Uh, uh, and I love the line at the end where it's like, you know, basically like for a time, you know, mm-hmm. it's like he was he had that that big blind spot. But it seems like even our villain here knew um, that 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 was that was very limited as far as how long that weakness would would hold. Eventually, uh, his head would win out over his heart. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's move to. I don't the... know why we're talking around it. I don't know, but we're doing re- we're treating this like a new release. It's we're great. Like doing really well to like. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I'm kind of happy with bullshit. that. You should probably this, probably watch it. You should this is our uh, before we. It's our it. very controlled, uh, calculating podcast <laughs> episode. It's perfect. All right, so let's let's talk about the production value. There's a little piece of production value that that is my absolute favorite in this movie. There's a scene where we find out that Mark Strong has been tortured. And one of the things they're using to torture him is sound. Uh, and the way they use that with the headphones where it kind of, you know, at first we don't hear anything and then we hear the noise and then it cuts out. I think it's just kind of brilliantly done because instead of just like showing us that this person has been tortured, like a very, very small degree, of course, but we actually experience a little bit of it. So we don't, I think sometimes it's easy to despise a character who breaks under torture, um, but this helps us still bond to Mark Strong's character. And I just love the way they did that in a little like three second moment in this movie where we understand what he's been through without having to kind of show the nitty gritty of everything that they probably put him through. Yeah, I didn't I didn't, I didn't go there. I went to, uh, of course, as you should, if you're uh, if you've got blood coursing through your veins to to Gary Oldman's little montage of him retired. It's uh, like swimming in like horrible <laughs> like cold English water, just like Ooh. it's like, you know, that their version of the YMCA or something. That's torture. Like, That's the real I, torture. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what it does, uh, in a very similar fashion. It bonds you to the idea of this character wanting to jump back into this madness, to into this paranoia. Cause you're like, wow, if he's if he's committed his life to this, that whatever rush he gets and most of it's going to be intellectual because he's not Jason Bourne. He's not James Bond. Right. Um, you, you have to wonder uh, if he's going to turn into someone like a, a Connie Sachs, which is like, you know, it becomes very sad. And you were like, mm. you felt so important for so long. Like you felt so valued as far as what you were doing that to be retired from that. Right. That, that, that I got it quickly. So that's, you mm-hmm. know, getting into the, uh, yeah. the production value of a uh, half naked Gary Oldman swimming in hey. very cold, unappealing water. <laughs> I like Perfect it. Perfect choice. Well done. Uh, <laughs> the other thing I noticed that I really liked, and I wanted to kind of get your take on this is the design of the quote unquote, the circus, which is just, you know, where all of this takes, takes place. Um, I'd love the fact that it just looked like a bland, regular office like it you know you have this idea in your head of like oh spycraft like the offices are going to be really technologically advanced and it's going to be really cool and really awesome to look at sex swings yeah exactly (laughs) but in this we've just got like i mean this could be anybody doing data entry anywhere else in the world and i love the way that it was set up and it also felt like a real office that was actually 
working. It wasn't just like, okay, we're going to show you this shot of the office so you know that's where they are, and then we're going to zoom off to somewhere else around the world. A fair amount of this movie takes place in those offices. Yeah, I mean, the only the uh, the control room basically is the only one that feels like suddenly you're in like I don't know the, the Masters of Evil or something like <laughs> a little bit. you know this is yeah. where all the plants and everything's are plotted. Uh, but yeah, like that the sequence I mentioned earlier where where Peter is uh, going through just trying to get to, to steal something from the circus. Uh, I, I you know you have to go through you know secretaries, you have to go through guards, you have to go through people basically saying like oh I've got a you know, got to mark down like you were here. Like, you know, it's just, it's just more paperwork and you're just surrounded by paperwork and typewriters. And it's like, yeah, it's, it it does feel like a place that's not, not glamorous at all. The sequence where actually Mark Strong's character, Jim, where they flash back to the night that, you know, he was, he was shot. And when they start getting the information, the news coming in, uh, when, when Colin first bill comes in, you know, that the guy who was just sitting there, just like basically working, like, the radio just seeing mm-hmm. like what communications come in not glamorous in the slightest i think right. he's he's one of the the main characters from snatch right <laughs> it's just like yeah, he's just the, he's the one that drew the short straw as far as like you gotta sit up late or uh, john hurt's gonna throttle you if you don't get this down <laughs> right <laughs> Uh, fantastic yeah um all right so let's move to our favorite scene so what's one of your favorite scenes from tinker taylor soldier spy it would be a toss up the the Connie Sachs one I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, but I'll go with I, I couldn't really decide. So since I've already used that one, that'll be the tiebreaker. I love when uh, after Peter is he has accomplished his goal, but he's not yet left the circus. He's he's got the information there after, but then he's interrupted, and you think he's being interrupted because they've caught him. They're mm-hmm. aware, but it's actually you know it's it's unrelated to the betrayal that he's actually doing in yeah. that moment. He's just drawn in. Uh, so the, the Toby Jones character of uh, Percy, uh, the Tinker character here, can attempt to do his best control. And un- <laughs> but unlike control, like he he doesn't get the reaction he wants. He flat out like, you know, he talks around accusing Peter of being a traitor mm-hmm. um, and then tries to belittle him and badger him into giving up any information he has uh, basically about like who's working to bring me down. Like right. I want to maintain this position of power, and I I love Benedict Cumberbatch. Like first that he like laughs, and then he like <laughs> the shrug when he realizes, <laughs> yeah, when he realizes, oh, like oh, you're attacking me and you're putting L on the table, you know, he he writes the ship. He he meets um you know power with power in that. And I think it's right. a great acting moment. I really I'm not a, the world's biggest Benedict Cumberbatch fan, but I love that entire exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really works. And it's, you know, it's it's a great acting moment for him. And it's also it's also just really funny. Like that sequence is enjoyable. Like it's and I think it's a movie that needs a couple of those moments where it needs like especially after John Hurt is kind of gone from the situation. Like you need some moments of enjoyment because there is it is it's a very polite be... way of saying that <laughs> yeah. he's dead. Well, character is dead. You know, he's gone from the situation. Well, the man just died like not that long ago. I didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't want to hammer that home. Very but. different way from control now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I also really like um, the opening scene with Mark Strong's apparent death. I think that scene is, it's like, it's a beautiful little short film. Like it's perfectly staged. Mark Strong's like nonverbal performance is about the best you're ever going to see. Like it's 
utterly fantastic. Like you get exact, and some of it's done with the camera too. You see what he's taking in, you see what he's seeing, and then you see his like minuscule reactions, but they become so big and so powerful because of the close up of the camera. And that scene, like even though you have no idea what's going on yet, like you know you are supposed to feel terrified in that scene. And you really do. So I love the way that that scene is shot and the way it's acted, especially by Mark Strong. Like, it's fantastic. High praise. Best nonverbal acting there. Apparently you didn't see The Artist, sir. Oh, Jesus. Academy Award. <laughs> let's not. Let's best not. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm, I'm more okay with best picture than I am with best actor because I just think Gary Oldman this gives. Year? Was that 2011? Yeah. It was the same year. Jesus Christ. So, so many good movies in 2011. So yep. many great movies. But, you know, it, and I don't I don't dislike the artist. Like, I don't think it's bad. Oh, I do. But I know you do. I do. But I don't and think. I love dogs, too. Yeah. And it still doesn't fucking fool me. <laughs> but that just reeks of a movie where the Academy is like, old Hollywood. We love this shit. Yes. Give it all of the awards when you have Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy here and Gary Oldman's performance. It's a little, it's a little upsetting. I mean, you know, no. It's not, you know, you can't really get too upset over the Oscars because they get everything wrong, usually. So, you know, it's going to happen. But that one is particularly difficult to swallow. But Life is beautiful, bad. It is. <laughs> it is up there. <laughs> it may be the worst choice this century. I'll say that. All right. Fair enough. All right. Fuck so... the artist. Fuck that, <laughs> Fuck that dog. <laughs> Jesus. Now I know how I'm going to open the episode. All right. So now we move to our theme, uh, which is paranoia. So as you had this theme and watched the movie, how did you feel? I mean, it feels like an obvious question, right? How did paranoia play into this spy, spy movie? I mean, you're going to have that. didn't right? affect me. I'm just like Peter Gwillem there and you're Toby Jones. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> just shrug it off. <laughs> Don't challenge me that way. Um Paranoia. Um, I mean, I, I think what's most effective about the film, uh, there's a certainly uh, uh, a degree of expectation from a spy thriller that's like, okay, so they're going to be paranoid of each other at work. But sure. the fact that we have our main character have a failed marriage that means a lot to him, that gets brought up a lot, and yeah, we don't man. have any like real interactions with the wife. I mean, she's just a figure. Like, right. you know, just through, through glass or just in the next room. You know, has, or, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, she has the, 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 the memento that she's left him with the, the lighter as for, you know, with right. all my love, she's just this presence here. Uh, that's is what surprised me the most is how much this life that we don't see of smiley, uh, made me feel more hyper aware and more like, like there was, there were weak points in there. And this guy was going to be the one to see it through because you already without, you know, without being like a generic action movie where we see the the man lose his wife in the opening scene. And then it's like then he becomes like a gun toting like asshole who doesn't have a care in the world anymore because everything's been taken. You know, from him. I'd watch this that like, movie with Gary Oldman, too. I'd watch that. Sure. Too. <laughs> but this is, you know, this is a far more uh, realistic uh, version and kind of scarier, too, yeah. in that way, because he's still a man who deeply cares but he really doesn't. He's he's sort of operating alone, mm-hmm. and he doesn't have any sort of faith in humanity or in the world anymore. And, and right. so he makes him the perfect spy that way. Yep. Um, so yeah, that that's the thing that strangely works the most for me is this this mm-hmm. presence of this this wife that's left him. Right. Yeah. That that's a really good point. I think when I was watching it, that what it made me think of is that it's kind of showing you how useless paranoid thinking is. 
Um, because everyone in the movie is paranoid. They're all like pointing fingers at each other and like, find out who the bull is and screaming at one another. Yeah, they're paid to be. Right. Sure. Yeah. But you have the character of Smiley, who I don't think is paranoid. Like, I think he is, he is taking things as they come and he is very logically like putting this together. And everyone else is just kind of freaking out and yelling at each other and pointing the finger. And he's just like, let me figure this out slowly it's going to take a while but i'm going to find out who this is so it like it actually leans us towards like okay the way to solve these problems is not to not to suspect everybody in this intense way but to to suspect everyone in this kind of it's almost like this equality (laughs) like i'm going to suspect all of you equally and then i'm going to put this all together i'm going to figure out what's going on while everyone else is freaking out i'm going to figure this out which i love this is the craziest you've ever ever <laughs> said on a podcast. This, it's like that that line, like you're you're not, yeah, you know, it's not paranoia or something. If they're they're really out to get you, to, like you're trying, you're justifying right. this. Right? Yes. It's like, no, no, be paranoid in a very even kill the right way. way. Like, be equally paranoid <laughs> of everyone around you. Don't point fingers <laughs> until you're sure. I love it. It's fantastic. No, I like my version better. Where Smiley is this broken hearted badass. Well, <laughs> I mean, he's definitely like brokenhearted. Anybody. I think it's interesting. I, what you brought up about his wife is really interesting because I think if you're only half paying attention to this movie, you can miss a lot about that relationship because she never does show up. So you think like, oh, well, that relationship isn't that important. But it's constantly brought up around him. Like there's – I was reading up on it and apparently there's like a whole subplot in the book where it's insinuated pretty heavily that he's been cuckolded, like that his wife has been cheating on him for years. And you can, I think you can see that in the way it's presented in the film too. I mean it's a little more distant than that, like everything is in this movie. But you do get – I mean that – I think that is the thing that affects him most. I think that's – like he's surrounded by all this tragedy and all these bad things happening. But I think the thing that really gets to him is his marriage. I think that's what hits home for him. I'm I'm glad you came around to my way of it's, thinking. I talked to you off the, the ledge the with ledge, your yes. Fox Mulder sort of <laughs> look at the world. You know, there. that is the <laughs> highest compliment you can pay me, sir. Thank you very much. All right. So now we are going to talk about the movie we were pairing this with, uh, which is The Snowman starring Michael Fassbender, but also directed by Thomas Alfredson. So um, are you looking forward to seeing The Snowman? Are you going to see The Snowman more importantly? Uh, no, I'm not looking forward to seeing it. And uh, yes, I am, because apparently I'm booked on the True Romance Film Podcast this week, even though I tried to throw in for Happy Death Day and they had no interest in it. <laughs> and guess what? They're wrong again. They, you know, <laughs> it should not be surprising that, that those guys do not have their finger on the pulse of what will be popular <laughs> or get clicks. So here we are. Yeah, I, Mainly because, you know, it's unless you had um, – you know, you've obviously made the point that this is the same filmmaker and it just kind of looks like it looks like one of those movies that Liam Neeson should be in and by mm. one of those like generic sort of like European action directors. Sure. This just does not look like was there a movie in between that I missed? Is this the follow up to Tinker Taylor? That's a good question. I'm going to look that up right now because that would be a goddamn tragedy. I hope there's something else. I'm hoping there's something I've missed. Nope. Something uh, six know. years have gone no. by and nothing else. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's even worse because that you know that's it may be good. I, I don't know, but it just feels like a step down from Tinker Taylor. To like, be fair, to, most it feels like would, you, but this feels like a big step down. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you know you're you're going into some sort of element of trash, and I I don't know if it's maybe just a mystery angle. And for filmmakers, it's hard to get any project off the ground. Mm. Fastbender's in it, so 
Right. There's that. But yeah, I'm not really into the marketing material of like not great. the letter and the snowman head. I don't know. It just looks dumb. It, it, looks it ends stupid. up it ends up feeling comical. Like the imagery that, that is in the film that they're using in the in the trailers and the posters, it all feels kind of funny. And it's definitely not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be like a murder mystery. And I love Fassbender. Like I'll watch him in anything. And I've proved it time and time again with some of the shit that he has been in. And I've watched, I watched Assassin's Creed in the theater for God's sakes. Um, and I really like this director, at least uh, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. So that gave me a little bit of hope, but it's, you know, it's getting torn apart already in reviews and, you know, like just the trailer, like if Fassbender wasn't in this, I would have saw the trailer and been like, nope, next, no interest. Right. Um, so the only thing that's pulling pulling me towards it is the fact that he's in it. So I have uh, like very low hopes for this movie. So maybe I'll think it's good just because my standards are so low. Like I'm like, this is going to be terrible. Hey, this was mediocre. Good job. <laughs> like, but it's it's going to be rough, I think. I don't think this is going to You're take really, the really story. promoting the hell out of this upcoming episode. <laughs> What am I gonna lie? Like it's gonna be the best of the best of the year. No, fuck that. I'm gonna tell the truth. This looks like it could slip into bad territory. I'm hoping for a decent movie. That's what I'm looking forward to for the snowman. So here's hoping. Just watch Happy Death Day. It's 90 minutes. It's all right. It is short. It's so okay. There's that. All right. So before you take off, Mike, one more time, maybe tell people how they can uh, berate you on Twitter, since I know you love getting those notifications so much. I have been on an unfollow spree, which has been nice. So I, I, do, I understand the pleasures of Twitter when you're not following people. Yes. <laughs> that's, it's that's the always best. Good. So with that being said, follow me at Projecting Film on all social media. After I've said how much I don't want to follow people, you can now follow me. That's see if, just. That's see, right. if, see if you can make the cut and get a follow back from Mike. I'm sure you will. Like, you know, I start these new podcasts so I can restart my social media presence back to zero. So everyone is a VIP currently with right. those accounts. So, sure, follow me there. And, uh, yeah, check out Projecting Film, the podcast on iTunes and followingfilms.com and on uh, Podbean, I think. I think that's it. I know. What else do you need from me? What else can I give? So that's it for our latest batch of nonsense featuring Dave and Mike of War Machine vs. Warhorse. Thank you very much for listening. And you should definitely follow him on all those accounts, including at War Machine Horse. So the next time you hear me, hopefully we will be doing a new release review of The Snowman. And if you want to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can follow me on Twitter at PCK Study or go on any other social media platform. Look up PCK Study or Pop Culture Case Study. You'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, pretty much wherever you want to find us, we will be there. And if you'd like to write me an email and tell me how wrong or how right I am, feel free to do that. And that is popculturecasestudy at gmail.com. And if you'd like to monetarily support the show, you can do that on Patreon. So that is patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and there you can donate on a per-episode basis and get some cool rewards for it. The last thing you should and could do is you can go to followingfilms.com and check out other great movie podcasts like The Best and Worst of the Best and the True Bromance Film Podcast. So until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Touch the list of
is Valerie Play.